0: This time, Allegra tells me, we're going to get everything back on track. This place, it it just sounds more your speed. Something cerebral. I really do see it being a good fit for you, David. Time to dust yourself off and try again. She's right. Of course she is. Surely this time, of all times... Will be the time that something changes. It's just another day in a skew, and I have been found another job to occupy myself with. It turns out a friend at the city planner's office knows another friend who has contacts at the Royal Society, and they're in need of someone to help copyright their medieval collection in the hope of luring in tourists. For 12 weeks, I will be amongst books instead of people. In another life, it'd be everything I've dreamt of. I don't want to seem ungrateful. I also don't want to be here any longer. My wife is clattering about at the sink, and the longer I watch, the more it seems clear that she isn't actually doing anything that her arms are simply rattling pans and mugs and plates back and forth from one side to the other in some desperate pattern of motion and business designed to summon up an atmosphere of antiquated, comforting domesticity. Beneath the table, my son is crawling in a gentle, figure-of-eight recurring path around my legs, his long, fingerless limbs wrapping themselves tightly against the denim, his pale, inhuman face smiling up at me, with folded-over, fleshy eye-sockets. I I think I'll eat my toast when I get to the office, I announce to the kitchen, rising from my chair and pocketing the miniature marmalade jar. When I enter the hallway, I note that the walls have been filled with framed photographs, portraying tender familial moments I do not remember. My wife, my son, and me. The wedding portrait is quite a sight. I stand stiffly to attention in a pressed suit, my hands by my sides, like I'm propped up in an invisible coffin. The bride is mostly veil, her bulbous, shapeless head lowered in devotion. From underneath her skirts, my son's horrid white face peers curiously out upon its extended black neck. I feel like I'm sinking. The Royal Society, my new workplace, is on the Red Saints Boulevard in the old part of town, where the streets grow wild and the cobblestones crack beneath the pressure of fresh things, forcing themselves up from the depths of the earth. The streets are broad and stately here, the kind of place where you could imagine carriages once rollicking back and forth. Marching men with halberds and pointy beards, Of course, there's no guarantee that Askew really did exist back then. I'm not sure I can believe in it having a stable history any more than it has a stable geography. But it's quaint and entertaining to think of it as some medieval burg, or even a rickety hamlet that might once upon a time have made peasants and druids splutter and shake and think themselves quite insane. Or even earlier still, a network of caves, Some blank-faced, fur-skinned Homo sapiens returning from a long mammoth hunt to discover that the warrens of their home were no longer as they remembered, twisting in unnatural directions, leading to places that conjured up their own limited nightmares of teeth and noise and dark. In the cave paintings that went wrong, the experimental daubings where the brush slipped and the faces came out warped, the buffalo twisted and savage, The sky melting into the obscene land. That's where you might find the first imaginings of something like Eskew. Perhaps it isn't so quaint or entertaining. A moment later I stop before the gates of the Society. And they are gates. A pair of great wooden gates studded with iron and only semi-ajar as if this great square, four-storey building had defended itself against an invasion not so long ago. Great blue and yellow banners hang alternately between the tall, corniced windows, and a pair of cannons have been neatly arranged in the central courtyard to welcome guests. There's even a coat of arms over the entrance, for God's sake. A detail so charming and reassuring that I deliberately keep myself from looking too closely up at the half man, half animal creatures rearing up upon it, in case I see something there that makes me feel less charmed or reassured. Inside is just as delightful. I gaze up and across the grand central hall, scored by free hanging staircases from north to south, from east to west, leading dizzyingly up and down from the various mezzanine floors, trailing away into the exhibition spaces with intriguing names. The Sallow War. The King of Rust and Ruin. The Harvest Man's Reckoning. There are armoured knights here, grim and overbearing statues, and tapestries that portray noble jousts or wild hunts through brambled forest. I introduce myself at reception, and I'm led up the first and second of those perilous staircases, and into an office that's insalubrious and, yes, dingy, lit only by the great window looking out onto the Red Saints Boulevard, but none of this matters, because the walls are lined with books. The work is explained to me. I will strive towards the themes of the Royal Society's 14 upcoming exhibitions. Leafing through the reams of archival documents on a given topic, and editing them down into a series of concise, accessible statements that can then be placed on placards for the museum's visitors to huddle around. It all sounds rather marvellous. It does seem strange that we will be writing in longhand, rather than typing, in great oversized ledgers and with fountain pens that are rather elegantly attached to the desks with long golden chains. But I am content for now to take it as a sign of pleasingly old-fashioned impracticality, rather than anything sinister. The only potential fly in the ointment is my writing partner. He's a short man, wiry and grey-bearded, perhaps in his late 50s or early 60s, and when the supervisor introduces him, she does it with the words, This is Palatnik. Play nice with David, Palatnik which seems like a red flag. And Palatnik does not look up in answer to that, but only smirks down at his own open ledger and continues to scribble, which seems like a worse one. I'm left alone with him, to get settled in. I pick up the nearest ledger, the one entitled The Festival of the Crying Duchess, and begin to make myself busy. Over the course of the next seven hours... Palatnik says almost nothing to me. I ask him to pass me a ruler. He ignores me. I mentioned that I'd be happier if we closed the window, if that's okay with him. He says nothing, just keeps on writing, his pen darting back and forth across the ledger's pages. Outside, the faint muffled chatter of the society's visitors persists through the day. It makes the silence inside the office seem all the more lonely. It's not that I enjoy conversation particularly, I simply like it when other people can give me the reassurance that I exist. I'm almost startled, at around a quarter to four, when Palatnik suddenly leans back in his chair, tilting his own thick ledger, which appears to be for an exhibition called Ritual Punishments of the Old Escovian Families, and reads aloud, One particular invention of the ruling class at this time was the sleeper's mask an iron box placed over the head of the prisoner and drilled into place. The crowd would then holler and bang pans and hold lit torches close to the sleeper's head, disorienting them and creating the sensation that they had somehow descended into the underworld. He says it proudly, like he's impressed by his own turn of phrase and expects me to comment. "'Very good?' I say politely. "'Nice rhythm.' I'd want to learn more. Palatnik stares at his ledger for a moment longer, ignoring me entirely, with that same little contemptuous half-smile upon his face. Then he goes back to writing. At ten past five, he closes his book with a thump, returns the lid to his fountain pen, and leaves in silence. I wait just long enough to avoid bumping into him on the stairs, then pick up my satchel, And follow after. Somewhere on the first floor of the society I lose my bearings, find myself walking amongst exhibits in glass cases that I do not recognise. From behind me there's a clunk. I spin around and find myself staring at a riveted square iron box fastened over the head of a pinioned mannequin. The dummy is tilted unnaturally from behind the glass, its bound shoulder leaning against the surface and wobbling ever so slightly as if it's only just stopped moving. The box is rusted and dilapidated after long centuries of neglect, but it's clear enough what it's supposed to be even before you read the placard beside it. The sleeper's mask is exactly as Palatnik described it. I give the exhibit a suspicious look But it remains quite still, and after a moment I turn and stalk away down the staircase. I'm having trouble with the Festival of the Crying Duchess. There's iconography of wailing or sobbing faces throughout the historical texts and exhibition photography, but none of it seems to offer any explanation And when I do spot a reference that seems to name a specific duchess or duke, I inevitably find myself reading back to discover that I was mistaken, and there is no such reference, only a paragraph about crop rotation or viaducts that doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything else. And whenever I think I found something relevant in the photography indexes, it turns out that the page itself has been ripped away. Or the image has been scrawled over by spiralling, grotesque cartoon pictography, making it impossible to see what lies beneath. After nearly three full days of work, I don't have much more than a few introductory sentences. It's very much like I'm being asked to write about something that does not exist. Opposite me, Palatnik scribbles away only occasionally stopping to consult a text or album for a split second before regaining his momentum. Before long, he'll have completed the entire exhibition. Well, I think. Screw it, then. I uncap my pen and begin to write. Like many European fates, Eskew's Festival of the Crying Duchess is celebrated with a parade led by giant-headed figures representing various folk archetypes. The Duchess herself, of course, but also the Cowardly Knight, the Old Man of Green Hedgerows, the Two-Faced Bear, the Unpredictable Fishwife. It just comes to me. It feels good. Creativity can be its own escape, I suppose. At the end of the sentence, I glance up guiltily, Half expecting to be caught in the act, but Palatnik is still writing calmly in his own ledger. I press on. The festival of the crying duchess, as it turns out, is a genuinely remarkable event, far richer in folklore and action than you could have anticipated. The ceremonial bonfire in the town square, where parade goers congregate to light their torches and toss the effigies of the Alabaster King who the crying Duchess chases through the streets, wailing his name. The colossal inflated pig, wafting in the air and hung from a thousand hooked strings above the heads of the crowd, which may represent the Pope, or perhaps just monastic gluttony, I haven't made up my mind yet. And the festival's founding myth, which scholars believe underlies the symbolism of the occasion. A beautiful thing, mythic and tragic, replete with memorable characters. I'm proud to have invented it. At five o'clock, Palatnik shuts his ledger, dumps it onto the desk, and makes his exit. I stay there for a while longer, taking the time to read back through my day's work, marvelling at how fresh and thoughtful and real the entire thing sounds. The noise of the visitors outside ebbs and dies. The light outside the open window dims into dusk. And finally I decide it's time to go home, snatching up my satchel, locking the little office behind me. I can't pretend that what happens next is entirely a surprise, and certainly not an unwelcome one. Because as I step out onto the mezzanine, I catch a glimpse of a row of tall glass cases on the far side of the bridge, newly polished and installed. Carefully, I cross and make my approach. Five giant plaster heads are hanging in their cases, strung from wires, powdered with white and red paint, lovingly restored, but still very clearly artefacts from some bygone age. The crying Duchess hangs in the centre, her mouth agape, two thick lines of black tears rolling from her eyes. They're all there. All of them, just as I wrote them. The crying duchess, the unpredictable fishwife, the cowardly knight. All of them are there. And the thought of that makes a shiver of excitement run up my spine. They came to me when they were called. Palatnik and I sit in silence. Writing. The scratching of our pens on paper is the only sound. Neither of us stop to get a drink of water or visit the bathroom. Neither of us bother to check the records. We just keep writing, more and more furiously, until it seems as if his pen's scratch is actively competing with mine, and I speed up, sketching a maniacal path across the ledger's page, turning the page back, writing, writing until very suddenly my fingers slip and the fountain pen goes skidding up into the air, unceremoniously hooked and dropping on the end of its little golden chain. Palatnik stops writing. He smirks with the unbearable air of a man who has won without even trying, and lays his own pen aside. I saw your handiwork this morning, Ward, he says. Crying Duchess. Not bad. He looks at me with knowing, sly eyes, and my expression is surely all too guilty and my manner far too halting when I reply with something like, Oh, you uh, you read my notes in the ledger. Palatnik scoffs. I saw your handiwork, I mean, he says with emphasis, then jerks his head out towards the doorway. I didn't do that, I tell him. It's not bad, he says, ignoring me entirely. But it's not great, either. I've seen new fish like you come and go, come and go. If you want my advice, Ward, if you want to survive here, you will understand what the society wants. And what does it want? I ask him. Palatnik closes his ledger meaningfully with a hard, thick slap. The society wants to be real, he says. He speaks in a low, careful tone. No drama in his voice. How long have you been here now, Ward? David, I reply. It's been three years now. And then I halt because it suddenly occurred to me that it was three years ago, this time last year. That I've been saying three years for some time now, and I cannot remember when I started saying it. Palatnik nods. I've been here for seventeen years, I can count he says. More that I can't. You don't survive that long on luck, Ward. You do it by knowing what the city wants. And then you feed it. Once you know what it wants, you feed it and you don't stop until there's nothing left in you and it may as well feed on you next. He pats the heavy ledger. Now the society, he says, it likes it when we feed it history. That's what I've learned. Because there just isn't enough of the real stuff lying around, and because without history to fill it, this can't possibly be a museum now, can it? And when you have a museum that can't possibly exist, shelves of books that can't possibly have anything written in them, well, that's when things start to go wrong. And believe you me, I've seen things go wrong. You telling me you haven't seen the same ward? Palatnik tilts his head. I don't think I can keep track of everything I've written for it by now he tells me. There's one royal dynasty back in the 15th century that was all mine, made the entire thing up, but you wouldn't know that if you strayed up onto the fourth floor and found yourself staring at their paintings. So, to be clear, I reply, meeting his gaze, you're saying that you can make up history, will it, magically into existence, by writing about it. It isn't that I find the idea impossible, It's just that I don't like the expression on his face or the way he talks to me, and I don't particularly want him to be right. Palatnik raises a single finger, as if to shish me. He says, No, 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 Ward. I suggest. Within these four walls, all I do is suggest, like a humble servant. And once it's all written down with footnotes and citations... And it feels just a little more real. The society creates. It has the raw material, and I don't, after all. It doesn't always accept what I write, and that's okay. Perhaps it turns out that a scholar got their facts wrong, or an old text was misinterpreted. It can always be corrected. And believe me, if it really doesn't like something you've written, you'll know about it. Like I say, Ward, the society's been through a few like you before. If you aren't feeding it, well, then you're just grist for the mill. Just a friendly warning. He looks into my eyes and laughs when he says that, then lapses back into his own comfortable silence and begins to write again, turning the leathery pages of the ledger back and forth, back and forth. Well then, there's nothing to do but create. As the days pass, I pick up one ledger after the other, each bearing some new title, the wellspring of my inspiration, the cloth-faced horse, finger thieves of the stranger's quarter, rituals of the Argent Basilica. I have not been able to control a single aspect of my life since I arrived in Askew, and now I have power over the centuries. I invent and then destroy entire families. I concoct noble scholars and honourable politicians who are then laid low by a bout of smallpox or stabbed in a back alley. I build up villains whose inexorable rise ends only in a final bloody mistake at the very height of their powers. I am fickle, for such is the nature of good drama. I am merciless, for such is the nature of history. And as I invent the city's past, the society's collections expand to realise my vision. New halls and new artefacts, fresh glass cases appearing out of nowhere to accommodate them. Objects that have always existed in this world since I took the time to imagine them. I understand that I am not fully in control here, that this is only some trick of askew and it's dangerous to get carried away, but it does occur to me that Technically, this power is godlike. I mean within the standard definitions. Often, I admit, my vision comes out changed. More than once, I have stumbled onto a painting of an ancient noble that is more crabbed than I intended, his expression feral and malevolent. And sometimes the suits of armor have the faces and limbs of crying infants moulded in metal over the visor, which I never specified. And old King Fourlegs, which was a typo on my part, disturbs me every time I pass by his funeral casket. But it's all mine. I brought it to life. I don't think I can explain how good that feels. Palatnik, however, does not seem any more inclined to get along with me, no matter how much history I conjure up. In fact, he seems less smug and more sour. He's begun to bring his lunch into the office and eats it there, stinking out the little room with pot noodles or tuna. More than once, we have fallen into a protracted, silent battle over whether the window should be open or closed. He likes it open. I don't want the rain getting in. I can understand why he's jealous of me. He's a small, limited man, a craftsman rather than an artist most comfortable imagining torture devices or weaponry, unable to summon the empathy necessary to really create a life from scratch. One morning I even catch him wandering around in the museum, glowering suspiciously at the glass cases, as if he's written something he's truly proud of, which the society has nevertheless refused to bring into existence. His nasty eyes fix on mine, and he looks not just spiteful, but humiliated. To have been spotted like this. I meet his gaze, shrug, and continue on up the staircase to our office to get on with my own work. Clearly, the society just likes me better. I continue to write. And then one morning I am strolling up into work beneath my umbrella when I see that enormous banners have been erected all the way along the Red Saints Boulevard. A single plaster iron cheek, an artfully drawn black tear. The Festival of the Crying Duchess. Join the Royal Society in celebration. April 14th. Tourists are gathered around the museum entrance. A hawker is selling cheap-looking souvenir heads and sparklers and roasted chestnuts. April 14th. I suppose today must be April 14th, now that I come to think of it. Although who the hell knows when it was April 13th, but the point is that I most certainly did not let the festival take place on April 14th. It's a harvest festival. It's about loss and fear, and the human spirit asserting itself in spite of these things. April 14th. It completely messes with the symbolism. It's not right. I pound up the society stairs, past an out-of-work actor in a giant plaster head of the old man of green hedgerows, who greets me with something like, "'Forsooth, my lord!' I don't hear the rest. Palatnik is sitting in his chair, in our little shared office, facing the doorway. He isn't writing, but a ledger rests open upon his knees. "'Morning, ward,' he says cheerfully. You've ruined my festival, I tell him. What, what the hell, Palatnik? You're ruining it. Oh, he says with a spiteful innocence. Oh, I, I remember now. That was a few weeks ago. I didn't realise you were still working on that. I thought you'd left it behind. You were taking on so many new projects, and it seemed as if you'd never bothered to write down the date of the actual festival. So I made some changes, a few improvements. Improvements? I snap. The festival is mine. I made it. Palatnik folds his arms. Ah, oh, he says, I rather think that the festival belongs to all of us. Don't you agree, Ward? Still, he licks his lips. If the festival did belong to you, that would explain the ceaseless gloom, the weird-for-the-sake-of-weird-flourishes and inability to write convincing plot mechanics, the lack of any relatable historical characters. I've done what I can to fix that, but in truth, the ruining was done already. Bastard. I take my seat and lift a ledger from the side, and I begin to write. The clock upon the wall ticks away, filling the silence between us. Hours pass. Your Escovian Civil War, I say quite suddenly was a clear rip-off of the American Revolution, speeches and all. I'm amazed the society accepted it. And your exhibition on the cycles of post-medieval fashion, Palatnik tells me sweetly, was as mannered and as senseless as you are. You're not an artist, I say. You're a hack. Your work's only successful when it mimics existing clichés so exactly as to attain some semblance of comforting familiarity. "'Your work isn't successful at all,' Palatnik replies. "'Some hours pass in silence. "'Neither of us takes our lunch. "'We continue to write, "'our pens scratching, endlessly scratching. "'I will not leave him alone in here to spoil my history. "'He will not leave me because he fears I'm petty enough "'to wipe out all traces of his work. "'The sun is beginning to set.' The museum is quiet. Finally, Palatnik tosses his pen down and goes to open the window. He heaves, his muscles straining. It seems to be stuck. I flick back a couple of pages in my ledger. Since the firebombing of the Red Saints Boulevard in 1776, I read aloud, all windows along procession routes... Have been double reinforced and kept locked tightly shut. He turns and glares. I smile at him. Seems pretty successful to me, I say, corking my pen. Right, Platnick says. Then he strides over to the pile of completed ledgers and lifts one that I had been working on. Stop it, I say. Platnick licks his fingers select a page, gives me a quiet, happy smile as he lifts his pen and begins to write. The so-called rituals of the Argent Basilica, he begins, were proven in 1986 to be the work of a forger and a charlatan, and the ermine masks themselves made from cat skin. As a result, the entire collection was removed from the Royal Society in 1987 and burnt. I almost launched myself from my chair. That's my exhibition, I hiss. You can't, it won't let you. But history has no master, I know that, and so I stumble to my feet and out into the mezzanine, and my gut churns at the sight of the empty brick wall that now stands on the opposite side of the Great Hall. A dead blank space that just a moment ago was hung with banners and placards, the entrance into the gallery that commemorated my invention, my Argent Basilica, but now it's gone. I stand there for a time, my fists unclenching and clenching in anguish and loss. And then I go back into the little office, and I don't sit in my chair, but I go over to stand by Palatnik's chair, breathing down his neck as he pretends to ignore me. And then my hand clenches over his hand, causing his pathetic attempts at history to run out in a sudden violent scribble into pure nonsense. And as I squeeze down with all of my strength, The fountain pen bursts, and ink gushes forth across the page, flooding that which was written. Palatnik gives me an indulgent look, glances up at me, then back down at the swimming pages. Then he drops the book, and goes for my throat. I'm on the floor, tripping back over my own feet, and Palatnik is punching and throttling me as I kick back up at him, and it's fortunate in a way that I am lying upwards because I can see that the ceiling of our office is pooling with ink, a great purple-black stain spreading outwards from the centre. A gasp. Look! Look! And when he turns to look, I lift the ruined ledger from the floor and smack him in the face with it, once, twice, until he staggers back against the desk. Palatnik raises his hand, dabs at the blood gathering at the corner of his mouth. You're nothing, he says almost in disbelief. Not here, not in my museum. You're just grist for the mill, Ward. And then he snatches the festival ledger up from the desk beside him, tears my fountain pen loose from its chain, and dashes out into the darkness of the museum. Slowly, feeling at my throat, I get up off the floor. At first I'm not certain if I've won or not, But then I hear Palatnik's voice, sing song and so happy, floating down the staircase towards me. The festival of the crying duchess has begun since the beginning of the 20th century to incorporate an older tradition. The ritual sacrifice. I go to the doorway. Palatnik is standing at the balustrade on the mezzanine, all the way over on the other side of the hallway, grinning wildly, the ledger perched in his arms as he writes. Every year, the Alabaster King is represented by a living participant, a foreigner of lowly standing, a man whose name... I start towards him, already dreading whatever he's about to do, and he capers nimbly away from me, rattling up the staircase onto the next floor above, still laughing to himself, whose name is David Ward. And this is when I begin to hear the great hubbub of voices from the street. The rising clamour of the crowd. I rush back into the little office and press my face against the window. People are marching in the dusk light along the Red Saints Boulevard. They are thronged in their dozens. Men and women with children perched upon their shoulders, chattering happily to themselves waving their sparklers and their flags and their scalding hot torches. Amongst them walk the figures of my parade, clad in ermine or perhaps catskin robes, colossal plaster heads with vast round eyes, perched where their real head should be. They turn to the crowd, their giant heads bobbing merrily, and wave their hands, silently and meaningfully, conducting the march. Far above them floats the great balloon hog, hideous in proportion, its flanks set with little wiry hairs, its trotters flailing helplessly in the wind. It has a human face, I realise. It has my face. I can hear Palapnik's crowing voice floating down towards me from the staircase, just scraps of awful meaning. Catch the alabaster king, drag him out into the public square and enact his punishment. Take him by the arms and legs and head, and pull in every direction, singing as they go. At the intersection of the boulevard, the parade halts. There's the occasional flash of cameras. At the crowd's head, I can see the crying duchess, her vast, tottering white head still bleeding with black tears. She turns, slowly, until her painted eyes are staring up at me. And slowly the parade shifts about. They are marching along the boulevard towards the gates. The chant is audible already. Catch the king, tear his flesh, make him cry. Catch the king, tear his flesh, make him cry. A few of them must see me at the window, because they're waving cheerfully up, placing their David Ward masks over their ghastly human faces. I dash out onto the mezzanine, staring down at the revolving double doors that, in just a few moments, will be entirely blocked off. I look up at Palatnik, who is cross-legged on the third floor above me, smiling cheerfully down at the spectacle. You don't have to do this, I hazard. I'm sorry I criticised you. I probably need to learn to be less defensive about my own work, that's all. You were here first, and I just need to respect that. I hope we can get over this together. He just calls back down. Grist for the mill, Ward. Grist for the mill. He puts his fists together, and then pulls them apart, rapidly, in a snapping motion. I take a step towards him, and he lunges to his feet, ready to dart away again along the mezzanine and up the darkened staircase, on the other side of the vast gap between us. He's spry, quick on his feet. I could end up chasing him around in here for days. I don't have days. There are people pouring into the central courtyard, towards the great revolving doors of the society, chanting and whooping. I dash back into the office and begin to tug at the window, desperately... For I recall, yes, secured shut. I did that. It seemed funny at the time. I need to think. There are the ledgers. I'm still in control. Perhaps I could write in a secret passage or some new kind of exhibit. Perhaps there could be a mace on display and the glass case could be unlocked for reasons that are ceremonial and important and might just make enough sense if they aren't examined too closely. What the hell would I do with a mace? I snatch up ledgers from the shelf and begin to stack them, hurriedly. Agriculture gods of the 7th century. The coronation of the Grub Queen. The endless furrow of Swelter Street. All of human history, all of my invention, and there's nothing here that can save my life? The pile topples out of my hands. I can hear them reaching the revolving doors. I seize one of the fallen ledgers, the one that reads, Plagues and Disasters of Old Askew. And that's when the idea hits me. I lunge for a pen. Blatnik! I yell. I'm coming up after you. You hear me? I'm coming up. He just cackles. And then I hear him as he turns and begins to run further up the stairs towards the floor above, the fourth floor, his footsteps quickly receding as he climbs higher and higher away from me. I'm already writing. In 1806, the fourth floor of the Royal Society was destroyed in the great fire of Askew, and since then the building has been limited to three floors only. I place a full stop, drop the ledger, and dash out into the mezzanine. Platnick's footsteps continue to recede for a second, and then the silence. Just silence, and the darkness above me does not move or change. I've gone too far, I think. Asked for too much, I I need to come up with something else. And then something drops from above. It's Platnik's legs, neatly severed just below the stomach, still clad in blue jeans and running shoes, and the foot catches on the balustrade before me, bouncing once before continuing their descent into the midst of the crowd below. There's no sign of the rest of him. Presumably it's encased in concrete and wiring high above me, locked in the grip of a third-floor ceiling, which has been there for over 200 years. A second later, the ledger comes drifting down, its pages fluttering madly. I dive forwards, reaching over the balustrade to try and catch it, but it's just out of my grasp and it continues to fall, impossibly slowly, landing with a thunk upon the carpet beside Polatnik's severed legs. Amongst the marches, who are even now thronging through the revolving doors and up the stairs towards me, their faces alive with merriment and spectacle as they wave and shout my name, taking photographs as they go. Catch the king. Tear his flesh. Make him cry. They're carrying a crown for me. It's just paper, but the gold glints like something real. There's something else glinting, too. Bookshelves and archways are lit with flickering fire that did not rise from the torches of the parade-goers. A torrent of fire, converging from the society's exhibitions in towards the centre. And yes, I must concede the limitations of my creativity have been caught out again, because I did not specify when the great fire of Askew ended. So why should it not still be eating away at the walls and the carpet of the Royal Society? Why shouldn't the flames be furrowing inwards from every direction, converging murderously upon the centre? I turn and run up the stairs, my feet clattering on the metal steps, onto the third floor, the final floor, my last place of refuge. I can already feel the heat on my face from beneath. It's all burning. The ledgers will burn too in a matter of minutes. If I wasn't about to die horribly, this might just save my life. Far below, the festival crowd is walking through the fire. They don't even seem to notice what's happening to them. They're just staring intently up at me, smiling and chanting, keeping the mood lively as the golden flames catch on their skin and they begin to burn, smiling and chanting, their flesh charring around the edges, held hands melting into one another as they advance further into the fire, finding their way to the staircase and marching on upwards, smiling and chanting, deeper into the inferno, snapping away on their liquefying smartphones and cameras, as black plastic merges with their arms, smiling and chanting, as happy as I imagined them on the day of this sacred festival, until they're just faint chalk-white figures drifting through the heat as if in slow motion, until their heads and limbs crumble, and the chant is a meaningless, tongueless rattle of scorched lungs, and the second rank collapses into the ash of the first rank And there is only fire in here with me. No, not quite. One figure endures. I can see its great dreadful head bobbing through the flames. And suddenly my crying duchess is tottering up the third-floor staircase towards me. Her colossal plaster head is melting, losing its shape and solidity, and the black tears are liquid now as they pool from her hideous round eyes her mouth still open, in a twisted grimace. I turn to run, but the smoke is choking me now, pooling in the air, making it impossible to see or breathe, and I stumble down onto the carpet, and she is so much closer already. I shuffle back, helpless, pressing myself against the balustrade, wondering if I have the courage to leap up and throw myself over. As the Duchess looms over me, her expression seems to change, resolving itself into the happy smile of someone who has finally, at long last, found the one she's looking for. And then there's a loud smack of thunder, and her head explodes. Just fragments of hot plaster, scattering in all directions, rattling over the floor and over my chest. Her outstretched hands flap out towards me for a moment, as her headless body falls, deflating solemnly across the stairs. I look up, and there's someone standing there, amongst the flames. I lower my rifle, and then carefully loosen the scarf that's pressed against my nose and mouth. The man cowering at the top of the staircase seems to focus on me. Hi, I tell him. I'm looking for a map.